Thursday, April 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me to wrap up Industry Week, Assistant General Counsel here at The Motley Fool, Chris Harris. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, glad to be here. Should it's be- nice to have a lawyer in the room just because I want to talk to him, not because I need him. It's good. I don't <laughs> like it when you need me. I, it's more fun to talk. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm constantly going to you with legal issues, but, um, but I, I, I thought it would be interesting because... It seems like every few weeks or so, one of the things we touch on here in the studio has to do with the law in some way, shape, or form. And I thought it would be interesting to maybe kick around a few different tof- uh, topics specifically with you. Um, so we'll uh, we'll talk about a case that is actually working its way through the courts right now here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, something affecting the world of podcasting, which I just learned about um, and we'll also get into an area of law that you are particularly excited about. But let's start with red flags in general, legal red flags in general. And I- I've said before that when Uncle Sam comes knocking on your front door, it's not to give you candy and flowers. And companies have to deal with inquiries, investigations, whether it's the SEC, the Federal Trade Commission, the FDA. What? So as investors, how do we separate what is – I don't want to say frivolous because I I don't think that Uncle Sam comes knocking on your door, at least I hope he doesn't, um, just for frivolous reasons. But I have to believe that some are more serious than others and therefore as investors, we should take them more seriously than others. When you look at the world of investing, because you're also an investor, what are the red flags that are more meaningful and have greater potential meaningful impact for investors than others? Is it by industry? Is it by agency? How do we separate these? Well, I think uh, a, a good one first to start with is sort of what agency are you looking at and what industry are you dealing with? Um, if, if you're going to start flagging things on, okay, uh, significant environmental violations, for example, I mean, if you're an oil shale producer, you have four or five ongoing things with the EPA at any one time. That's just the nature of the business. It's not really a red flag. It's, oh, look, you do business here. You're going to have this. If you're an auto manufacturer, you're going to have two or three things going on with the FTC at any one time. It's just a question of sort of how bad are they? Like, is is this the sort of thing where, oh, if this lawsuit is correct, we're going to have to issue everybody a new $3 bumper because their bumpers fell off if they hit a curb too hard? Or is this the sort of thing where... Because the keys worked in the ignition wrong, 26 people died over the course of however long we knew about this problem. That's The first one is, is sort of get a gauge on what are other companies in that industry facing uh, in terms of that those, in, those uh, federal agencies and lawsuits that are against them. Uh, that's, that's the first thing you sort of look for. And the second thing is think about the kind of lawsuit it is. So if you're facing um, a single shareholder lawsuit, if you're facing a suit from an individual probably not going to be that big unless you've done something truly horrible. Um, If you're facing a class action lawsuit, then things start to get a little bit interesting. If you're facing a class action lawsuit where the members of the potential class are the families of people who've died, now you're talking about something really scary. Um, If you're facing a a patent infringement case in the uh, the third district in the eastern district in Texas, that could be kind of a big deal because the Eastern District in Texas likes to allow patent suits to go to juries, and juries like to give large dollar amounts to plaintiffs against big corporations. So those things you sort of want to keep in mind are, in the event that this legal information turns out to be true, and it goes sort of the worst possible scenario, how bad is that for the company? Is it a a tiny recall? Is it a giant recall? Is it the core to their business, like the, the Pandora case, 
if Pandora had lost worse against the uh, um, not the RIAA, but the uh, the um, the folks BM, BMI BMI yeah, if they'd lost worse against BMI, they could have had to pay two or three times what they were currently paying for music. That is a significant issue for them. It's a major part of their business is paying for the music they're playing. So that's going to carry a lot more weight as a lawsuit than if they'd been sued by one person for losing their email address or something like that. You just raised a topic I hadn't previously thought of and I think could be – I think it is an additional hurdle for investors because if I'm someone who invests in, say, pharmaceuticals or biotechs, that sort of thing – well, part and parcel of being an informed investor is making sure you know how the FDA works, how the FDA approves drugs, the different stages, all that sort of thing. And that I think that comes with being an investor. And if you're going to be an informed investor, you, you need to know that. But it's another hurdle altogether to know how individual district uh, courts work. So how is – I mean, when you mentioned the Eastern tech – like. My eyes practically rolled back into my head. So I'm now supposed to be aware that the court in eastern Texas has a propensity for letting this type of case go to jur- – like how, how do you – is there – how do I sort that out as an investor? I, I mean really the big ones are uh, look at the venue that it's going to be in and then you can generally find out – because the places where you're doing this by and large aren't places where it's the first lawsuit of this type ever – the Eastern District just has a reputation for allowing patent cases to go to trial. Um, the Virginia Districts have a reputation for being very, very fast. Delaware has a reputation for allowing corporate cases to finish quickly. California has a reputation for taking on really interesting sort of consumer class action lawsuits and carrying them for a good long time. It's one where you don't have to know it as an investor, but definitely at some point in the story, when the case gets to that place, Someone in the financial media will write about it, and they really they'd be derelict if they didn't mention that the venue that this was being tried in was chosen for a reason and could ultimately affect the outcome. All right, we'll get to Texas in a minute, but since you mentioned Virginia and how things move quickly, this story caught my eye: the fact that Yelp is involved in a case that has, for my eyes anyway, very quickly made its way to the Virginia State Supreme Court, and. The thumbnail sketch of this case is a carpet cleaning business in the D.C. area, Hadid Carpet Cleaners, has brought a case against Yelp saying that anonymous reviews that were posted on Yelp about this carpet cleaning business have adversely affected their business. And I don't know the law, but one of the points in their case is hey, look, here's this person who's identified for the, from this one part of, I think, either Pennsylvania or New Jersey. We don't do business there, the old, but one of our competitors does. And that's why I think that we have competitors attempting to sabotage us. This seems like, and I'm not a Yelp shareholder, this seems like, at a minimum, uh, this, is, this is not good for Yelp. This is maybe not even neutral for, now, uh, for Yelp. I'm just wondering, is this bad? And if so, how bad? Well, so Yelp gets a, a number of requests for this sort of stuff. Um, it's kind of an ongoing issue between all of the consumer review sites and the small businesses who are being reviewed, and that the small businesses really don't want to have negative reviews out there, and they don't feel like they have an effective mechanism to deal with that. Um, there's a, a lot of back and forth going on. If you've read about uh, anti-slap lawsuits, 
I've never even heard of anti-slap lawsuits. <laughs> it's, it's the essentially they they're a, a type of law that they're trying to pass that makes it very hard for corporations to use their legal might to restrict the speech of people who are co- uh, criticizing the business, basically. Um, but carried out to its full extent, it applies to a tiny carpet shop in Virginia, that kind of thing. The slap lawsuits aren't. The, the slap laws aren't in place right now, um, but in, in the specific sort of Yelp case that we're dealing with, what's really going on is Adidas saying, look, Yelp, I don't think these people are real. I think that these are my competitors. They're not people I've ever served, and they're posting lies, and you're allowing them to post, post lies. Joseph Hadid, Hadid Carpet. Yeah. And then Yelp is saying, you have no evidence these are lies. Like, nothing about these claims in any way means you can show that they're lies. And, and Hadid is saying, well, I... Have, have looked. You, the one thing you would give me when I requested was you gave me the IP addresses for these people and you said they're all different IP addresses. They're not one person. Clearly, you, you need to have more evidence before we'll give it up. And he's saying, I can't get any more evidence. You have all the data. All I know is that these people have posted that they came in once with no real names and had a bad time. And that's not enough for me to find anything else. And that's sort of what's gone to the Supreme Court is on the one hand, the, the Virginia State Court has said, there's no constitutional protection for people who have made false claims. So if these people aren't actually customers, then their reviews are not protected, so Yelp should give them over. Yelp is saying, you've given me no evidence for these people being criminals, but you're asking me to violate their privacy and their agreements with us based on the word of this guy saying they weren't here, but he can't prove it. That's the interesting question, I think, for for Yelp and for the Virginia Supreme Court is – where do you fall? Is, it, is the privacy rights of people who post on Yelp, can we violate them based on somebody's word? Or do we have to protect small businesses by saying, look, anonymous posters need to prove that they were actually customers before we'll let them say disparaging things? How closely do you suppose the people at TripAdvisor, the people at Google Reviews, for that matter, are watching this case? I think fairly closely. Um, on, on the one hand, it is restricted to Virginia. It's a state court decision. So people who are making reviews in other states are paying attention, but it's not going to affect them right now. What would be really interesting is if the Virginia State Supreme Court sides, say, for Yelp, and then someone brings the same suit in California, and they side for the Californian version of the carpet shop. That's the kind of thing that gets to the Supreme Court, where you have two state Supreme Courts that have taken completely opposite decisions on one issue. That's a case that people will pay a lot of attention to. Here's a case I didn't know about until recently, and now I'm very interested in uh, for reasons that will become obvious in a moment. We've talked on Market Foolery time and time again about technology companies that have made large acquisitions in part because they're going after the patents. And you know, some have said when they look at BlackBerry, the best thing BlackBerry has going for it is its patent portfolio. Uh, but there is the dark underbelly of patents uh, <laughs> that come under the uh, the heading of patent trolls. Um, I was listening to a pod- podcast recently. It was the Nerdist podcast, um, very popular, much more popular than Market Foolery. Um, and uh, Chris Hardwick, the host, was interviewing Adam Carolla, who is a comedian, actor, has his own podcast, also much more popular than Market Foolery. Um, and Corolla was talking about how his company, Ace Broadcasting Network, has been sued by a company in Texas that has a patent that it claims covers the – and I'm, I'll just quote directly from the story I read. 
covers the production of digital content that can be downloaded from a specific URL that client software uh, can retrieve and store. Uh, in other words, pretty much the exact definition of a podcast. And they've gone to Corolla and said, we now own the, po- uh, the patent for how your podcast is served up or distributed, and you need to pay us. And the first thing I thought was, whoa, whoa, whoa. If they're going after Corolla and they're right and they win, then aren't they then coming after everyone and asking for money? And therefore, aren't they coming to us? You've looked into this a little bit, um, only a little bit. But how, how scared should anyone who does a podcast be about this? Without speaking directly to whether or not they're coming after us, um, I think that – Overall, it's something to pay attention to. And definitely, if you want to give to Corolla's sort of defense fund, it's a a great idea. Um, The way that most patent trolls work is that they sort of build up a large number of patents and then they they try and play them off of each other. So you'll have a, a chain of patents where one of them is for something that's sort of very, very in use right now. But you can tie it into other patents you have to have a much earlier date for when your sort of patent protection kicks in. And then you go out and you, you say to people in very verbose legal language, very threateningly, essentially, look, you've been violating my patents for essentially since the dawn of time. In order to make this right for all of your former violations and then licensing going forward, we need you to pay a licensing fee of nominal plus back violations of significant. They don't always push beyond that. It's much more of an upfront, make a strong claim and then... Because a lot of people, it's just not worth the legal battle to fight it out and the fees aren't significant or not horribly significant. It's like, well, if I could pay $5 million and maybe win or $4 million and just not have to deal with it anymore, I'll just pay the $4 million. It's actually – it's made a little bit worse because uh, patent suits and the way that they play out are very hard for people who are defending their use to reclaim court costs. So if you're sued by a patent holder and you win – Unlike most other court cases where you're sort of you're wrongfully sued, you actually don't get you. It's very hard to get the money that you spent on your legal defense back. It's sort of a defensive inventors thing. Like if I feel a company's infringing my patent, I should be encouraged to sort of make sure that inventors are made right. Unfortunately, with the patent trolls, it just provides another sort of price that you have to pay just to enter the playing field with them in sort of a legal battle. Um, those sorts of things are going on in, in Corolla's specific case. I think he's going to have a pretty good claim because podcasts have been around for a very long time. And it's it's going to be hard to show that the patent that they were granted for what looks like podcasting is, one, should have been granted, and two, should be granted back as far as they claim. I was going to say, I believe the patent was granted to them in 2012. Corolla's podcast has been going on a lot longer than that. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned his legal fund. I will tweet that out on the Market Foolery feed because I, do, I don't have the URL fa- handy because, you know, as – as well as I'm sure Adam Carolla is doing in his personal life, he's not this massive corporation. Um, maybe it is telling that they went after him and they didn't go after Clear Channel, Clear, Clear Channel, or or you know any of the big you know NPR or any of the big corporations that have multiple you know like have ten podcasts going that sort of thing. Um, let's wrap up with something that uh, I hadn't even thought of until I saw a book on your desk. And that is space law. And uh, I made the comment to you like, well, space law, my, my hunch is that space law is sort of the wild, wild west of the legal world. And there's not really much on the books. And you said, actually, the opposite is the case. 
so the the crazy thing about space law and one of the reasons I truly love it is that almost all of the sort of official law was made before any of it could actually be practiced. So in the Cold War, the Russians get Sputnik up there, the U.S. lands on the moon, and everybody goes, wait, maybe we could get to space. But they don't actually want to, to let anyone else do it. And so the U.S. and Russia sort of jointly decide to make deciding space law an international endeavor. So they gather all of these countries and they sign the, the space treaties and they sign the moon treaties. And it's, it's this very forward-thinking international law that everybody's bought into about what it means to the fact that mankind can get into space. Um, unfortunately, it was really based on the concept that the only people who would ever be in space were <laughs> the two superpowers and that everybody else would maybe like go up on one of their rockets once, but as a country. And so after the sort of the fall of the USSR and the proliferation of other people who could get into space, all of a sudden you have companies who can put a man or a rocket or a satellite into space. Yeah, never, never mind countries, yeah. individual companies. Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, Richard Branson could do it on his own. Elon Musk probably has done it already. And that kind of thing is weird because the laws that they're subject to are laws that were based around international law. They're, they're based around the concept of a, a state with an army and a president and a people putting its sort of like quasi soldiers out there. And, and so as a result, it's very hard to get the sort of looser business interaction that you would expect from, hey, here's a group of competitors who are trying to find a better way to do something. It's, it's really more of a you by a good example is when you launch a satellite into space in order to launch a satellite you have to be approved by the country that you're you're based in okay the country that you're launching from the country that owns the payload and the country that built the rocket so that's four different places where you have liability basically for the rocket you're putting into space which is it's insane. There's actually there's a platform. So what does that, that take a couple of weeks to get that paperwork I mean, done? You know, knock it out of the park. There's a, a platform that they built uh, in in Europe. I think the Finns built it, and they dragged it out to the middle of the Pacific. Or sorry, the middle of the Atlantic, because that way you didn't have to deal with the launching state requirements. Like you just had the payload state, the rocket state, and the the company that owns the thing. You didn't have to deal with where you actually launched it from. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the the looser. Um, business interaction. It got me thinking to, uh, and I think we had talked about this previously, that 20 years ago, when the, inter- when the internet is sort of just getting going, it, it seems like the laws that were quickly put on the books were, among other things, set up to encourage growth. Maybe the best example is sales tax, and we're not going to have state sales tax. We're not going to worry about that, that sort of thing. And that's where you have some of the, the growth, the amazing growth that we've seen and my assumption was that, oh, well, space law is probably the same way. And it sounds like what you're saying is actually, no, the opposite is true. It's much more conservative, much more rigid. Well, it's sort of like if, if you sat down to create Internet law when the Internet didn't exist and all computers were the size of a room. So you, you, you brought together all the lawmakers and you're like, all right, how are we going to deal with sales tax? And they're like, why are we talking about sales tax? You're like, well, because someday this giant adding machine is going to talk to the adding machine in your pocket and you're going to buy shoes. So we got to make a law for that. And it, it's very, very theoretical. Um, in, there's a bunch of cool little nuances to it, but there's, there's actually like specific how you can build a base on the moon, where you can put soldiers, who owns stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's really surprisingly complete for a law that was made at a time when it was 
almost impossible for any of it to ever actually be used. It's nice to know that the laws are set up for how to build a base on the moon. I'm not sure there are a lot of contractors you can get. I don't think I can get my, the guy who did my kitchen to be like, listen, I got an idea. I need an, a, a, a much bigger kitchen. I'm building a base, uh, but it's on the moon. And, I mean, knowing the contractors that, that I've had, I'd really worry about the base they did build on the moon. Because, you know, like a, a one-inch gap in my house is fine. A one-inch gap in my moon base is kind of a big deal. Also, think of the delays. I mean, it's like, hey, we told you the kitchen was going to be done in six weeks. It's going to be more like eight to ten weeks. You know, a lunar day lasts for like 15 years, so. <sighs> I'm so not building a base on the moon. <laughs> Chris Harris, thank you for being here, my friend. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks or the moon bases that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Music.